Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. I'm really, really excited and honored to sit down with a friend of mine today, Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Uh, Donna's background is incredibly impressive. It's diverse and it's always, always poignant to whatever's going on today. So Donna is an award-winning science journalist. She's the author of six books and an internationally recognized speaker whose work explores the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and human emotion, three of my favorite topics. And her next book is called Girls on the Brink, Helping Our Daughters Thrive in an Era of Increased Anxiety, Depression, and Social Media. And this book really examines today's growing female adolescent mental health crisis and how the chronic stress and trauma affects female brain and body in uniquely powerful ways. And Donna's book offers new hope for helping girls flourish, even in the face of adversity. Donna also has a number of other books that I highly recommend, in particular, The Angel and the Assassin, which is about the tiny brain cell that changed the course of medicine. This one is a total game changer. And an all-time favorite is called The Last Best Cure, How We Can Rewire Our Relationship to Stress. Donna is also the creator and founder of a narrative writing to heal program, which I'll put in the show notes. And she is a sought after um, speaker and writer and her work has appeared in Wired, the Boston Globe, Stat, Washington Post and Health Affairs. She's appeared on the Today Show and NPR and is a regular speaker at major universities. This podcast is a deep look into uh, what makes Donna do the work that she does in this world and how her childhood and her coming of age really influenced the way that she sees health and relationships and trauma. And I just want to give a major shout out to Donna for the work that she does and for being such a good human and friend over the years. She has truly uh, epitomized what it means to kind of follow the breadcrumbs, which to me means whatever's going on in, in, in the world, you know, she seeks to find answers and solutions and make them practical in a very science-based way. So um, I think you're going to love her work and her story. And please check out the show notes to learn more about where you can uh, join her writing courses and or buy her books. She's a total gem of a human. Hi, friend. Welcome, Donna, to the School of Unlearning podcast. How are you today? I'm great. It's so great to see your smiling face. We've known each other a really long time, and it's just always wonderful to talk to you. Yes. I was trying to think the other day. I was like, it's been at least 10 plus years now. Um, yes. Through... Yes. I think we we met probably around 2013, 2012, okay. maybe. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, 10 years. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Um, mm-hmm. And also to think of the different chapters each of us has sort of embarked on and navigated and how they they keep, you know, crossing and our paths keep crossing and our sort of interests also always align in some way. And I think that's what draws me to your work and also ask, you know, they ask to be on my podcast is I, I feel like we're very much like kindred spirits and how we are empathy motivated and driven to bring different conversations and tools to the space of human healing. So, um, so happy we're here today. 100%. <laughs> Yay. Um, So one of the things I want to talk about, you know, the School of Unlearning podcast is a space where we kind of break open narratives, beliefs, and constructs, and we figure out 
the roadmaps we were given at a young age, the learnings we were told had to be, um, the things that we thought we had to mirror our lives after. And, and in this podcast, we explore that and we also kind of reverse them and we, we challenge them and we unlearn certain things to the degree that we can. So before we can unlearn, I'm very curious to see what you're unlearning these days um, about life, health, anything. But before we can get to that, I'm very curious to learn um, what childhood was like for you, because as we know from science and research and being in the clinical field, like our core learnings, our core memories and experiences are shaped in childhood. And that sort of sets us off on the path that we, that we're on now. So what was childhood like for you? And what were some learnings that you gathered at a young age that helped direct your path? Um, I sort of had two childhoods. I think of it as the before and after childhood, which I think anyone whose family has faced um, a lot of tragedy could relate to. So um, I think before um, in childhood one, <laughs> well, until I was almost 13, until five days before my 13th birthday, um, I had a really lucky childhood in that um, I grew up on the Chesapeake Bay. My mom would more or less, like a lot of moms in the 60s and 70s, I guess, would kick us out of the house and we'd be gone all day and yep. come back with, you know, fish carcasses and having caught crabs and having found, you know, baby rabbits in the field and mm -hmm. just that kind of life with dogs and tiny little half rotting sailboats that we would tinker around on. And I could literally get in my boat. We all had little boats um, with, with various problems, but I could rig and sail my boat out through the mm -hmm. coves and out into the bay by myself and, and, that was just how we grew up. I'm not saying it was safe, but um, it felt safe. And uh, my father and I were very close. He was also a writer. He was a newspaper publisher and um, life was good. We, you know, would sing Broadway musicals together. It sounds corny, but, um, and read Shakespeare at night, my dad and I. Um, my three older brothers and I were pretty close, but again, we just had a sort of charmed childhood in the way that we were mothered by nature. Yeah, sounds like it. Just that was a real mother to me growing up. Um, and my dad raised us as a newspaper man. He published some newspapers and he was very, very active in civil rights. Um, mm. He was very active. I was very small at the time, but I can remember uh, he would bring Vietnam vets home to stay mm -hmm. with us who he felt shouldn't be re-upped. And he would start little campaigns for mm -hmm. um, bringing boys home. Um, and, you know, he did a lot of work to put in public services, water, lights in the underprivileged community to the extent that when he died, when I was um, almost 13, you know, the church was not only standing room only, but people all around the block because wow. he had just raised us to say, to know that if you could help, you should help mm -hmm. and you would help. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't a choice. It's just, if you could help, you would help and you mm -hmm. should help. 
Mm-hmm. It was that simple. It was just baked into our DNA. Um, yeah. But he also taught me, and something he used to say all the time was, let's go make a memory. Mm. You know, and we jump on one of the boats and go out and tie up on the bay for two or three days, drop anchor and paddle around and swim around and um, or go dig clay, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the cliffs near us and come home and make terrible sculptures. But but that Mm. sense of freedom to be who you were, um, I think he saw us for Mm -hmm. who we were. And um, as I said, he, 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 well, he gave me my first book of Shakespeare when I was 11, you know, and we started with two gentlemen of Verona because that was, you know, the easiest one at the time. But uh, so I have a lot of really wonderful memories. My dad died very unexpectedly a few mm-hmm. days before I turned 13. And having come of age in the family that I came of age in, um, it was a, a fairly well-known family in the state of Maryland. Um, but, and most of the players have passed away by now. There were a lot of very powerful men in the family who, um, were determined to make sure that my mom, who was widowed with four kids, ended up with none of the family resources, businesses, Mm -hmm. living income, anything. And so we went through a series of really difficult things um, and Mm -hmm. uh, ended up all getting jobs. We were ages 13 to 17, the four of us, uh, pretty much putting ourselves through college. And we're very close to this day. And my mom really suffered during that time. She was not really able to parent. And I look back now as a mom and I can see with Mm -hmm. a lot of compassion how that must have been for her to lose everything she had financially, lose her husband completely unexpectedly. He died during because of an error during a minor minor operation yeah and i look at it now and i i see it with so much compassion but what it was like for me was complete hell and loss yeah and so i learned other lessons in that second part of my childhood so that's a really long answer Mm. um Thank you for that, for the um, for the detail as you were explaining life in part one, where you were out in nature finding baby rabbits in the field or on which you did ground. not touch. By the way, I want to be yeah. clear oh, to anyone listening: yeah, I was you say. don't ever touch the baby rabbit unless one of your dogs runs up to you with it in its mouth, gently yeah. carrying it, and you try to find where to put it so it's yeah. not looking at it. But yeah. Good detail there. Um, Yeah, it sounded very, you know, obviously I was like, as you were talking, I was like, wow, well, she's a writer. She's so detailed in her description. I felt like I was there with you in the fields and on the boats. And so I was like, yeah, she's she's in the right craft for her, her beautiful brain. Um, And then I was just thinking about what a, yeah, what a connected childhood that was in part one. And one of the questions I want to ask before we get to the loss of your father and how that shaped you is, you know, you mentioned your father saying something to you like, let's go make a memory and how sweet and whimsical and playful that is to have that influence at a young age. What do you think is one sort of core learning that he gave you or showed you early on that still stays with you today? 
Well, there were so many, um, you know, long before I read it in any book, he would tell me, you know, if two, two of my friends at school weren't talking to me when, you know, I got to school or whatever, he, he, he really ingrained in us, just show them more kindness. Like, mm-hmm. that's what you have. That's, that's your not superpower, because no one said that at the time. Mm-hmm. But you, you have, you have this power. Mm-hmm. And so that really always stayed with me. Um, I think that he also put forth in me the core sense. So this goes more to embodiment than mm-hmm. words mm-hmm. of what it feels like to feel safe in every cell of your body. I mm-hmm. think that's what's his most important teaching that's lasted for me throughout mm-hmm. my life. That it is possible to be in the presence of another human and feel utter, complete, unending safety Mm. in every cell. And I think that really is more important than any of the words that he might've taught me or anything he might've said to me. And he was someone who would say things like, yeah. Well, if you were up on the moon and you look down, none of this would seem to matter very much. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. He was very yeah. writerly. He wrote a lot. Yeah. Um, but that's what I carry with me is that in very, very difficult times, I can still call mm. in that feeling yeah. and let it embody me let and have an embodied sense of that presence. Um, and for anyone listening who's lost a parent early in life, like many individuals who lost parents um, at formative young ages, I also always felt my dad kind of hanging with me and talking to me and, you know, you can do that. Mm -hmm. I think you can, or that's Mm -hmm. okay. You're going to be all right, sweetheart. You know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So um, lots of people report that. I remember reading once an interview with uh, Julia Roberts, who, you know, I'm not a big celebrity fan, as you might have guessed, but um, <laughs> there she was, you know, in People Magazine when I was, I don't know, 30 or something going, oh, yeah, my dad died. I think it was Julia Roberts, um, someone like that, and said, oh, you know, um, I lost my dad, but, you know, he's always chatting with me. And I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. So yeah, there no. you go. Yeah, true, you're... true. I don't think I've ever told that story before. Oh, I I love that share. And I think you're absolutely right. He is there. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to me knowing what I know of your life, which is I'm sure there's more to to, way more to know and to explore in our friendship and relationship. But I even now I'm learning more about part one of your life that I didn't really know before. It feels like, you know, hearing hearing that you had that sense of safety with him and that connection to to nature early on, probably I would imagine was so pivotal for you as you went on to the next chapters of your life that, you know, you needed to resource that as a a safe space uh, to get through the next chapters. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about when your dad passed away and those years were very challenging and and, and difficult for you, um, how you endured and what was something that you felt like, you know, that was the world gave to you, whether it be like a statement, a meaning, um, how to make meaning from death that you just did not sit well with you. So I'm sure there was some difficulty oh, sure. in that chapter. That's such yeah. a great question. You're such a gifted interviewer. 
say I, who've been interviewed maybe a thousand times. So you really mm-hmm. are. You just have such a knack for this, Lisa. Um, Thank you. Well, I think that first thing, the first two things I had to unlearn um, were big. There were there were three core unlearnings. One was um, the solace that I thought I would find through my childhood religion. We were Episcopalian. And um, at that age, I was just going through confirmation. So that's a time where you spend a lot of time at church. And I was an acolyte at my church, one of the first girl acolytes, mm-hmm. where you know we would carry up the, the candles and hand things around to the all-male reverends and so on and so forth. Um, and I think I was an acolyte because my dad had been editor of the newspapers. Um, otherwise, I'm not sure a girl would have cut it. But yeah, uh, sitting in church, sitting with our our reverend um, and talking to him, um, or I guess at that time, somebody had maybe my aunt had wanted me to go and speak with him because. I stopped speaking when my dad died. So it was right before school started, right before seventh grade. I just completely stopped speaking. I didn't speak at all. I had, I could not speak. Um, one of my teachers, Mrs. Lindell, gave me the key to the teacher's library and just put it in my hand. And she said, look, you can go up there anytime you want. You can read anything you want. It's your key. And I spent every lunch hour sitting on this horrible little brown, squishy, springy sofa in like the attic of my public school, um, reading, you know, Henry James and Edith Wharton and just like opening up to literature on a deeper level. But the unlearnings were sitting with respected elders. And I said to the reverend, I don't understand, you know, why, like this, I, 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 why I could only get out one word. Why? That was it. That was the only word I could speak. And my family was not very articulate about things. It wasn't like there were outside of my dad, there was a lot of talking about feelings that would be like number 999 on the list. Yeah. Um, and there was also a thinking at that time that grief was a six week process. Mm. You're too young to Mm -hmm. remember that, Lisa, but that was the core teaching around grief was, Mm. and he said, well, you know, it's going to take about six weeks. And, um, and as for why, why did we paint the, the church door red, Donna? And he turned around and looked at the door. I looked at the door. I looked at him and I thought, okay, I have to search for answers in a different way. Like the people, that I thought would provide healing and answers are brick walls. Mm. There's just nothing here for me. The Mm. other teaching was um, we had a saying in our family that Jacksons take care of their own. And that's a whole long male historical thing going back through the original Jackson families in the United States. And it's sort of a toxic male thing. And I just very early on didn't like it and didn't get it. I just didn't like the whole thing. Like we're related to so-and-so or, you know, it doesn't, 
I just can't tell you how early on I went, yuck, ew. Mm -hmm. And the men in the family um, took such advantage of my mom and they sold her out of the business in a way that they knew would leave her destitute with mm -hmm. four children. Um, and then they sold the newspapers and they all retired. And watching that happen at that young age made me such, I didn't have a word for it at the time, but such a feminist. Yeah. No one, I, and, and I always have been, and we'll talk about my next book, right? And, mm -hmm. and my first book was a, fem, a book about, um, about um, the trauma that women endure. And now my next book will be a very different look at that. Um, mm -hmm. But just, it just, I had to unlearn this idea that Jacksons will take care of their own and realize, no, I, I, my mom has to take care of us now. We have to take care of her. I have to take care of myself. Yeah. No one takes care of you. Mm -hmm. And certainly don't trust the big, powerful guy to do it. So, and then the mm. third lesson is really, um, again, I have so much empathy for my mom, but she was not well during the years I was 12 to 19. And when I say that, I mean, she was very unwell. And um, she used to say two things to me and one was you're hysteric because when I tried to talk about emotional things, that was more than she could handle, which I now understand completely. Yeah. My yeah. God, you yeah. lose everything. Yeah. Everything. Um, your, your nervous system isn't going to be able to handle four teenagers with emotions. Right. So that makes sense. And the other thing she used to say, which sounds incredibly harsh, but for which I have fully forgiven her, is no one wants to hear what you have to say. Mm. And she'd say it pretty much all the time because I, 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 so, I was so much searching for how to make my way in a family that was so male dominated with three older brothers. And as I tried to figure out how to voice my opinions, um, she had been raised in an equally male dominated family. Her dad was one of the founders of the National Institutes of Health, and he was head of cancer research funding for 30 right. years. And there were a whole bunch of very powerful scientists on her family. So I do think about the DNA of the newspaper family, the writing family, and the, the science family. So wow. hello, science writer. Um, <laughs> and I had to really unlearn both of those statements mm. that my feelings are not hysteria and that I have something to say and it's okay to say it and it's okay to say it. So those are, those are, those are big unlearnings. I think I'm still working on all of them. Yeah. I would say actually they all are, seem like lifelong learnings for so many people to unlearn, you know, um, the, the heartbreaking thing for you as you experienced it, I'm curious to see how it's continued to shape your work is, you know, at the most basic level, there was a, a 
a trauma, um, a very big trauma, and there wasn't a space to communicate or process or move through that trauma. And everyone around you went from being like safe and like this very like nurturing environment with your father, who seemed like quite a serviceman, a man of service and like people centric. And then to this space of uh, it felt it, the way I'm hearing it, as you're explaining, it feels like a cold world. Um, like it felt like people weren't able to nurture you in the way that you needed and communicate with you. Um, how did you think that those pivotal moments in part two of that chapter of your life shaped part three and four and how you began to solve for problems of human health and how you began to look at the nervous system and the brain and autoimmunity and of course, early childhood, um, experiences? Um, I, yes, beautifully, beautifully, beautifully said, um, Yes, I very early on had a sense that there was a lot of investigating that needed to be done both mm -hmm. inside of me and also journalistically to open pathways in a way back to that sense of safety, mm -hmm. right? And I had no, look, we didn't even use the word trauma. Mm -hmm. back yeah. in the mid-1970s. If we did, it was a car accident. That was it. Yeah. Um, right. Again, you know, death was something people got over in six weeks. Um, I now know it's the loss that lives forever. Mm -hmm. And we had this sense that, you know, we didn't even talk about mental health back then. Yeah. And there's yeah. really no question in my mind, um, when I was 15, 16, 17, I was clinically depressed. There's no question in my mind. I did yeah. beautifully in school. Um, and I know you and I have talked about this, you know, how hard you can push yourself, mm -hmm. even when inside, you're not sure you want to be here. Yeah. And I know for those years, um, I had a sense that there was something inside that wanted to come out. Hmm. I didn't really know what it was. I started journaling a lot mm -hmm. after my father died. And I knew that that was just like a dive into safety. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's not surprising years later that I would continue to pick up the pen. But I have always had a really... Um, well, I have three older brothers who who sometimes think I'm too compassionate, you know, and that I have too much empathy, I which makes that. me too nice. Yeah, no. Yeah. And 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 that's their protectiveness, right? You yeah. know. Um and that empathy in me what is is still there and it means that it's never just about me. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It's mm -hmm. never just about me. If I'm feeling something, I'm pretty sure that it's just emblematic mm. of a lot of suffering. Yeah. A lot of, you know, uh, I think the German word is Weltschmerz, you know, this, this communal suffering that we all go through for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, that saying that, um, if you are all sitting in a circle and everybody put their problems in the center, you probably pick yours up and take them back out mm. and wear them. Mm -hmm. Because when we see this universality of how difficult life is and how much trauma there is and how much loss. So much. 
then we see that we're really not alone and 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 that we can charge forward with our own story mm. i think one thing that um has really affected me is that each of us has a different story of pain and loss but the feelings that come up for us are very similar we don't really often look outside of ourselves to remember how much the person next to us back when we used to sit on buses and airplanes which i guess we're starting to do again yeah you know that 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 person and i have a little game i play in my head where when i'm out and about i try to see all the other other adults running around as children yeah mm -hmm. i just i just try to see okay we're all sitting on this bus or we're in this meeting and and yeah. just try to see everyone as the child they were because everyone is carrying something forth mm -hmm. that's really painful or most of us we know statistically 64 percent of us and i think it's always been top of my mind to figure out the ways in which based on science and a felt sense of what is safe mm -hmm. and healing to use whatever gifts or abilities I have to open up an understanding of that on a layperson level mm -hmm. so that other people can find what they need. And you did ask, what did I have or what gifts did I think I had? Um, it took me a long time to realize that, although it doesn't sound like it today because I'm doing all the talking, I have an extraordinary gift for listening. Mm -hmm. And I have a gift for science. And mm -hmm. I have a gift for writing. Mm -hmm. When I went to college, I triple majored in public policy, creative writing, and English literature because I just couldn't figure out a job for me Yeah, out there. I literally ended up going and interviewing to be a buyer at a department store because I was so yeah. confused. Like, yeah. what am I going to do for a living? And um, and then I ended up going to a graduate program and publishing. But I remember one of my teachers sitting me down and saying, "Yeah, you're a really good writer and you're a really good editor. And mm -hmm. and I think I think that that this is how you should the way that you should go. But the other thing I learned is that I had to do it myself. Mm -hmm. No one was going to help me. No one was going to pay my way. Mm -hmm. No one was going to say, yay, you know, you applied and got in. It just, it was, it was going to be me. And that's how it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Your story, every time I hear it and in new ways and with different levels of nuance, I'm just continually floored by how empathy motivated you are through going through such trauma at a young age. And I'm curious um, what relationship you think those days after your father passed, where your voice was gone, you literally couldn't speak for some time, what that had to do with the beginning of the, the pivotal moment of turning for you in your life when you began to observe people assess trust, assess emotional capacity around you, assess like, is this a safe place? What, how those two worlds began to, to merge when you were voiceless you're the person who was your biggest advocate um, and seemingly safest person, 
was no longer there and how you began to sort of turn turn a leaf and really find your own sense of autonomy and your own sense of listening and observing and paying attention to the world around you. But with more of a, it sounds like with more of like a fierce, like, I'm going to go make the life I want. I'm going to create the career that I want, which you have very much. Well, I think I took up about a hundred wrong turns first, which mm -hmm. I think is inevitable. And, and, um, you know, I did end up in New York working for different New York magazines. And um, it was really, I cut my teeth in New York journalism. And that was a really great time to hone my skills and develop a lot of sensitivity to people and, um, you know, very powerful people and how to move in that world right. in a way that was very different than the kind of privilege that I'd grown up with, right? So um, it's a whole other thing. It's a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, not entirely, but but to some degree, it's really about how good you are, how fast you can write, how yeah. how good are your ideas, how quick you can you turn it around. So, uh, but in terms of personal um, evaluating safety, I was really confused. Right, mm -hmm. like I had a lot of confusion in my nervous system. So I'd grown up in a really tight, close family with cousins and grandparents and uncles, all that had blown apart, but blown apart in the most ugly and impossible way with everyone turning on everyone and never speaking again. Um, I'd grown up with incredible, uh, incredible sense of safety with nature and with my dad. And then that all blew up and mm. he was gone. So I made so many mistakes in relationships, in assumptions, and sort of found myself a lot of times having the empathy for suffering without the good sense of what was safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I knew it. Yeah, I knew it. It wasn't like I didn't know it. It wasn't like I couldn't see it. It was as if the, to be cliche, you know, I I was looking out at a field and that field was empathy, mm -hmm. but there were red flags waving in the field <laughs> and I just couldn't see them in my visual field. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw, wow, you know, um, that sense of awe regarding another human or their suffering or their story. Mm -hmm. Um, or their connection, connect ability to connect. Yeah. And so I went through that quite a bit. You know, I didn't meet my husband until I was 30. Mm -hmm. um, and there were, you know, some interesting years where I was traveling all over the world as a journalist to, I was undercover on the first international balloon team through post Soviet Russia pretending to be a balloonist. I, I, wow. I did learn to balloon. Wow. So I could go in and do undercover interviews with Soviet women about um, oppression and sexism in Soviet Russia. And uh, I ended up getting chased out by the KGB. I, I spent a lot of time in South Africa reporting um, and um, just did some wild things yeah. in addition to health reporting and health science stories. And I think my nervous system was like, let's use a scale of one to 100. Okay. I would say that for that entire decade, my nervous system was like an 885. In your 20s. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in 85. Mm-hmm. And then I developed a bunch of health problems. I think most of my people who read my work know about them. I don't write a ton about my health problems, but I'll occasionally allude to it in a preface to a book. But you know, I got a pace. I had a pacemaker when I was 28 for heart block, mm-hmm. um, which now I think was probably broken heart syndrome. But nevertheless, my heart just would stop for a few minutes at a time for no reason, and so I still have it today. Um, I developed a series of autoimmune diseases, which you and I have talked yeah, about a lot have, in our former us. lives, yeah. helping people with autoimmunity, um, something you and I were both doing at the same time, and ended up in the hospital. I've been in the hospital, all told, maybe a year and a half of my life, Wow, which is a really long time, and, and critically ill quite a few of those times. And many of them coincided with raising very young children. Mm-hmm. And so my nervous system during those years was 85 to 95, yeah. depending on the crisis of the day. Uh, my oldest son was in intensive care when he was born for a while. Yeah. He's, he's doing great now. He's at Berkeley getting his PhD in philosophy, but he almost died. And, and so I say all these things because there's been a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. There's just been a hell of a lot of trauma. Yeah. And now I would say my nervous system, if we want it down around, let's say 15 to 20 is a nice, um, Mm. I'm probably hovering at a 35 Mm -hmm. or a 40. Mm -hmm. And every day I stack in meditation, biofeedback, walking, yoga, Pilates, you know, I do, I do it all because that is the only way that over time I've learned to retrain my nervous system. And a big thing I do is I do a lot of narrative writing to rewrite the story of myself Mm -hmm. every day Mm -hmm. after I meditate. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I went way off the question there. but Oh, that's yeah. okay. We're on a great path. Um, I want to talk about the nervous system because a lot of people who are listening are aware of it. I've had a few guests on my podcast. One in particular, I think you'll love with Kimberly Ann Johnson, who wrote the book Call of the Wild. It's a sort of an examination of the nervous system and how we can um, better prepare our nervous system as women in particular to sit with stress and to sit with joy. And that that's a sign of a really good nervous system, one who can sit with both sides of the um, of the of the process. There, um, I, agree. I agree. She's really wonderful. I think you'd love her work. But um, so for those of you listening, it's episode twenty-two. But for for you, I want to know if you can maybe expand and help the audience understand when you say that the, your nervous system when you were in those t- years of your twenties was about an eighty-five. And now you're in, you know, a much healthier, more regulated state at like 35. These are just numbers. Can you tell us what the symptoms are? They're just numbers. The symptoms so people can understand what does it mean to have an upregulated and dysregulated nervous system? Because maybe people don't know they're experiencing it, but they don't know what that feels like, mm-hmm. you know? Great. So um, an unregulated nervous system, which for those of you who are science nerds, really means that your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight, flight, freeze response, is kicking your autonomic, is 
is kicking your vagal system into overdrive and your vagal system kind of oversees your heart rate and your skin conduction. And when you get butterflies in your stomach, it's because your sympathetic nervous system is in fight, flight, freeze, and your body doesn't really care that much mm. about digestion at that moment. It cares about whether you're going to have to run or hide or fight. Mm -hmm. So the parasympathetic nervous system, and Elisa, you know that I have pet names for this. I call the sympathetic nervous system the stress now system, yep. the SNS, because mm -hmm. most people don't like big scientific terms. And it helps our brains to have other names, you know, more familiar names for things. Um, and the parasympathetic nervous system is rest, digest, relaxation. It's if you saw a bear in the woods and the bear like walked away and didn't care about you at all, you would go into that rest, digest, parasympathetic nervous system, which I call the per now system. Mm, I love that. The PN. Yes. Yeah. Right. So when we've had a lot of trauma, our nervous system gets stuck in fight, flight, freeze. Um, for those of you who read my books, gosh, you know, um, I dive into this so deeply, but we actually see an influx of inflammatory hormones to the extent that it switches on genes epigenetically through gene methylation mm -hmm. that dysregulate the stress response. So a simple way to think about that is that what I went through and what people who experience a lot of toxic stress, adversity, or trauma growing up is that the nervous system, the, the, the brain and body become so flooded with these inflammatory chemicals and hormones that different genes that should turn on the stress now system and flip it back off, get stuck in the on position. You get right. stuck in the stress now system. Right. And this happens through a series of changes to genes that um, researchers can see on DNA. Mm. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's hard to swallow, yeah. right? Because it makes it, it can feel as if there's something so insurmountable that's happened and it's unfixable. Yeah. And yet that turns out not to be true. Right. Epigenetics are flexible. The brain is ever plastic. Mm -hmm. It's very neuroplastic. And we can switch some of those bad epigenetics back to good epigenetics again. Yeah. So um, for me, I think understanding that science, which I think I understood kind of innately before I understood it intellectually. Totally. I think I knew somewhere inside me I was trying to get back to that sense of golden safety. Mm -hmm. um, so that... For me, if I was dysregulated, mm -hmm. that stress now system was completely amped. Yep. And to the extent that I remember being on a train going out from New York City out to um, visit with some friends out on Long Island. And I remember the man sitting next to me saying, are you all right? Because I was shaking mm. so much. I had to put my head between my knees mm -hmm. because the combination of, um, I just learned that I had this major heart problem. I don't know what was happening in my love life, but it was probably not good. 
Um, I knew that I was behind on a deadline, but I wanted to not renege on my friends. And it just, that's just not how life should be. And I remember at that time going, this is, this is not how life should be. I would run five miles every morning mm. around the New York reservoir mm -hmm. just to be calm enough to go to work. Mm. Donna. So that's mm. dysregulation. Um, as I got older, it got slightly, you know, by the time I had kids, I was much more regulated because parenting in a way can be very regulating, even as it's very worrisome, especially if your kids, like my kids had chronic health issues because you suddenly are out of yourself. Yeah. yeah. It's so much about them. And you grew up with 8 million brothers and sisters, <laughs> so many. you know, yeah, so many. Yeah. That, that your parents didn't have time for themselves. And in a way that was regulating, but then I jumped over something really important, which was me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Regulated means these really difficult things are still happening. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter has had a couple of very difficult hospitalizations in the past four years and a very serious trauma. It's her story to tell, it's not mine. And every skill I've ever learned or written about. So, you know, I've written seven books. One will come out in September, but I've written six books. Those of you who read them know it's all about regulation. Mm -hmm. One way or another, I'm talking to you about regulating the body or the brain despite trauma and toxic stress right. and everything that we know on a scientific level about that, but everything we know on a felt human level yeah. about mm -hmm. that and trying to close that gap between what scientists are running around talking about, neuroscientists, immunologists, and that 20 year span that it usually takes to right. get to the public or to the patient. Yeah. And I just, boom, that's what I do you, is try to translate it and close it up. You bridge that gap, my friend, so well. I, that's the goal. And why do you think I did that? I have an idea. Um, well, I. I would say your desire to help reduce and, and regulate human suffering and to help people who've gone through such adverse childhood experiences and were left, were left to fend for themselves, literally and figuratively. I mean, that's also what you had to go through and what a lot of us have had to go through. So, um, And to do it for others, mm -hmm. to help others. You know, what is the sense of learning and knowing if we can't? goes back to growing up with my dad. If we can't reach out and um, my dad always used to say, you know, you've got to stop now and then and help the person next to you. Yeah. doesn't matter what you've got to stop now and then to help the person, help him up, mm -hmm. help him up. Yeah. And um, if, if I'm going to have the enormous privilege of being able to be a writer at this level, write books that are in 15 languages, I better be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. To help other people find relief from suffering. I can't imagine another reason why I would spend um, a couple of years in my attic for every book, yeah. <laughs> reading thousands of research papers. Yeah. And interviewing hundreds of people. I just can't imagine another reason to do it because I've got news for you. It's not easy. Yeah. yeah I was say it's not easy. Work. The irony of, of that work for the regular, for your nervous system and your mental health too. Like there's a lot that you have to, you get to do, but it's, it's a process. And I, 
one thing is it sounds like, again, for you and for a lot of people out there who have the privilege of being a writer, a coach, a speaker, it is a privilege, number one. And it's that you're that you have such love and empathy and a sense of connectivity to the people and the world around you, you know, allows you to do that work. But it's also like, you know, you have this um, very you've had this very personal experience that from a very young age, you went from safety to not safe and you've curated this beautiful life, but you're doing it for others in a way that allows them to you're writing the book that you needed to read, period. Like you're writing the books that you needed to read. That's right. I think it. I think it would have been a little over my head well, at 13. Yes, but- <laughs> um, it's ironic because uh, I remember my trigonometry teacher asking me how much more math I plan to take. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but not in a good way. So yeah. it's kind of ironic that I would I would work with you know sciences. Although I was always very good at at the biological sciences, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to say that, you know, um, again, something you and I are very, imp- very aligned on is I stack my day around my nervous system. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to do that because I spent 23, no, 26 years with kids in the right. house. And as my kids say, you know, mom, how'd you write those books at the kitchen table? Like, how, how'd you do that? I'm, I'm trying to finish a paper for school or whatever. And just that I, I, with managing some very serious health issues for myself and my kids. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I never felt that I either had the time or deserved the time to be the focus of the story. So even as I was writing and even as I was um, running around doing lecture circuits, if there were 10 minutes I could skip, it was certainly a cup of tea by myself or a moment of meditation or a walk by myself in the woods. Those things were just completely out of the question between work, family, and medical management. They were just, you know, no, I need to call Blue Cross Blue Shield again because, you know, I need to spend another two hours on the phone with them about um, my son's hospital bills. That that's, mm-hmm. that's the reality of life. Over time, I came to see how much that cost yeah. me. Yeah. And I realize that if I couldn't bring it in, in even two minutes here or there, and, and that really started my quest, probably at that time, I was probably 40, Mm -hmm. 42, 43 before I just went, damn it. Mm. You know, I don't care if it's a stoplight. I don't care if it's, I used to sit in my closet Mm -hmm. with clothes on my head skirts and dresses falling on my head to do a five minute meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to have that peace in that time where if I couldn't be seen, no one, and and it also helped me to center on myself. And now I'm very different. I start, I sit down with a cup of tea and I meditate. It's the first thing I do. I'm still in my bathrobe. I sit in a chair looking at our bird garden Mm -hmm. And I can't, I can't start the day without it. Then I begin some narrative writing mm-hmm. after that. 
then I start my work day in my bathrobe because who the hell cares? Yeah, good. And I go up in my attic and I start working on whatever book project I'm in the middle of. Mm. And then I take a shower and get dressed and do emails and, and prepare for lectures. And then every afternoon, my husband and I go for a walk in nature. If we can, we go hiking. Yeah. Then I do a bunch of yoga poses to stretch out, although I overdid it a few days ago and actually pulled a ligament in the bottom of my foot. So, you know, all these things in moderation. Yes. Um, anyway, I'm rambling, you know, but there you go. It's just it's just a matter of, of the meanness and the sense of me and who I am and, and that essential trust of my own goodness. Mm -hmm and my own worth actually bubbling up enough during the day that I will stop what I'm doing to reground and bring my nervous system down. And I think over time we come to see what our own signs are mm -hmm. that were dysregulated mm -hmm. and we start to see that we're ruminating, thoughts are getting caught in our head. Um, we're, we're not in our body. Mm -hmm. We're not relaxed. There's a lot of physical tension, something hurts. And I know the signs now how to, um, how to try to walk through one of the golden doors that I've created for myself to re-embody that sense of original safety. Mm -hmm. I think one, one, before we got on the call and we pressed record, you had asked me, you know, one of, is neurofeedback one of the ways that I've really been able to rewire my brain and like, you know, re-embrace my mental health in a more sustainable way? And I said, yes, for sure. And as we were just talking about your story of regulating your nervous system from those years where you were on your central nervous system or your sympathetic nervous system was just on all the time, you mentioned the story of waking up and running five miles, which is a high intensity feat, no matter, no matter the speed, that's a high intensity thing. And then going to work in New York city, which is its own, um, high intensity workout. And this idea of just like that, yeah. we don't understand how important it is to regulate the nervous system. And that when we do that, we actually, we have, we downregulate obviously a lot of our immune, um, dysfunction. And that of course we know affects our mental health too. And so as you were saying that, I was like, oh, like the other thing I did in the last five years was I started doing less and I started working out less and I started going to bed earlier and just going for walks in nature and really doing less. And that actually was a gift for my body and my nervous system because I also had the same mm -hmm. sort of fear of like, I have to amp myself up to go work at this startup. I have to go amp myself up to get on the train, to get into Manhattan, to do this work. And it was helpful in some ways, but it totally burnt my system out. and. And then the effects were quite obvious for me. But um, I guess for anybody listening, it's like this. One of the things I also feel like we share is like a crazy level of compassion for humanity. Like we have a brain, we have a body, these two mm -hmm. miracles and this one miracle. And we're just like peeling back the layers of what we know about it and how it works with the world around us. And it does take like effort. It does take some research. It does take being a scientist of your own experience to understand what you need and when. And obviously when your work does that, you teach that. But one of the first books you wrote, The Last Best Cure, 
was one of the first times I was like, wow, this woman, Donna, like she walks the walk. Like she's, she's out there every day doing like 10 different things for her nervous system and her body and her immune system. And I really resonated with that because it was a full-time thing for me um, in my twenties as well. And I, I, the takeaway, I guess, for anybody listening is like, taking care of the human body is not a part-time passive thing. You have to be engaged and it's a gift to be able to be engaged. And thankfully your work, you know, makes that very accessible for people. I think that it's a privilege that we have by being alive to be that general contractor of our own health, yeah. you know? Um, and you and I've talked about a lot about, Hey, you know, all the micro changes you can make really matter. And to, to come to that for yourself um, is really empowering. I'm, I'm, it devastates me that it takes so long for most of us. I think particularly um, for women, minorities, anyone who's grown up with a sense of being less than, and anyone who's had an experience of trauma, we know one of the ways that trauma changes the brain is that it's very, very difficult to get into that area of the brain, the default mode network, which has um, carries with it our, our sort of innate sense of self, our story about who we are. Right. And one of the things you and I are going to talk about is the narrative writing to heal trauma program that I do. And one of the things we do is kind of rewrite narratives in that default mode network of the brain. And when you've had a lot of trauma and when you have gotten the message that you're less than, whether that's sexism or racism or physical or sexual or emotional or verbal abuse, whatever it is, that story in there of who we are guides our actions, including should I sit down and meditate? And when you couple together trauma with that inability to take action, that's a trauma head state. It's very hard to dislodge. Yeah. We often have to try a lot of different things to dislodge mm -hmm. it. And to be honest, we often have to work with other people to do mm -hmm. it. The brain doesn't always untrain itself. It really, the brain thrives on two things, my safe or unsafe. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times when we try to teach ourselves how to feel safe, but we're coming from an experience of unsafety, yeah. it's very, very difficult to yeah. do that. One in a million people can do that on their own, mm -hmm. which is not to say all of your efforts on your own, meditation and walking in nature, they all add up. They soothe that inflammatory cascade, yeah. which amps up the nervous system and dysregulates us. But it's important too to remember that the brain also draws on novelty for change. Yeah. So that is why we have to try lots of different things, yeah. often with teachers and coaches and courses. You know, it's, it sounds like a lot of work, but the, the, but the beautiful thing is that once you teach the brain that these golden doors for you, the things that resonate for you, that help you to feel safe again and return to that original sense of safety, that they work for you and you feel the sweetness mm -hmm. of it. Just a glimmer, yeah. maybe a quarter of a second. Yeah, I'm talking literally. about a second yeah. to begin with. For me, for 10 years, I, I might have gotten it for three seconds a day. Yeah. But once you glimmer, get the glimmer, and your nervous system feasts on the sweetness of that, yeah. you, you begin to 
look for more and more mm -hmm. of it. And you try some different things. Mm -hmm. And you learn that's not for me. This is for me. I love that. I want to do this again. And then you begin to make other shifts. Like maybe you um, decide to go see a doctor and figure out your, your diet and your immune function. But it all starts with that essential turning to your own worth and your own, the, the, the essence is that you deserve to go on this exploration, to be a detective of self, to be the contractor of your own health and mental health and well-being, and find those glimmers through those golden doors, and then just find ways to keep opening them, even if it's 10 minutes a yeah. day. Yeah. And if you can't open the door that day to try and love yourself, if you can't, you know, I think that's, that's, that's an right. important thing. I have a thing that I do where I go, hey, do three things today. Yeah. I have a list of 12 things that help mm -hmm. me. Um, I have a favorite six, and then I have an alternative yeah. six that, you know, maybe aren't as natural for me, aren't, aren't, aren't things that I feel such a sense of connection or sweetness around. But I, when I go to bed at night, I'll often go, oh, you know, I did three. That's good. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. good. Now in a dream day, I do six, but life doesn't come that way. Yeah. Well, you and I are, again, are big proponents of small is really big. And I think that, you know, I think that's why I was drawn in my early 20s to spirituality and mindfulness and meditation, because I just some sort of light bulb turned on then. And I was like, oh, small is really big. And maybe it actually goes back now that I'm talking to childhood with basketball. I remember thinking if I shoot four more shots than my opponent, I might have a mental advantage. If I run one more mile than my other, uh, you know, friends who are running, then I will have a mental, I will be stronger, you know, and I, I, it ended up being mostly true for me that these small efforts at a young age as an athlete really helped with that confidence. And I think confidence is like a backbone for healing trauma is developing the confidence to sit with emotions, to sit with bodily sensations, to sit with narratives and learn to rewrite them. So um, before we get into, I, I do want to have you sh share your work on, um, you know, your healing narrative and the courses you, you run um, and your new book. But I would love to hear as we kind of bring you up to speed where you are now in these days, when you think about the idea of unlearning, you mentioned earlier on that there was probably those three things you mentioned early on that you'll probably still be unlearning for a good time. But is there anything that's top of mind for you that you're actively sort of unpacking and rethinking and reorienting yourself to that you're working to unlearn these days? Um, I think there's so many things, but I will, I will, touch on this one, and that is that um, it's not overwhelming. Mm. What do I mean when I say that? Um, well, as you were talking and I was talking, I thought, my gosh, if I listened to this in my ear pods when I was running around the New York Reservoir, although at that time we did not have ear pods right. or iPhones, right. um, I'd be like, oh my God, you guys. Yeah look at, you know, this is like a full-time job. I've got to get to work, you know, da, 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 yep. da, da. I've got eight meetings today, whatever. Um, and, and I guess what I'm learning is that it's not overwhelming. It's not overwhelming. It's, 
it it's this is an invitation it's a choice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's an invitation and a choice it's not overwhelming a lot of times when you realize the effect that um trauma or other inequities have had on you and on your sense of safety formative experiences in your life it can feel first the light bulb goes off okay my nervous system shifted and that's a great thing wow it shifted maybe i can shift it back but it also can feel really unfair overwhelming and kind of permanent like how am i ever going to undo this and as you and I are talking, I'm thinking of my, you know, 25 year old self running in New York and going, it does sound overwhelming. And I'm really sorry for those of you who are listening for whom it feels that way. But I want to reassure you, as I have learned to reassure myself, this isn't overwhelming when you and I, my husband's on a, on a teaching something right now. He's, he's a public safety attorney and he's working on supply chain issues as we speak. And I'm talking to you. And when we finish, it's actually, I think this will air later, but it's a beautiful fall day here in November. The sun is shining. It's 54 degrees, which is good enough for, it's, it's okay to set it all down and go for a walk with my husband. It's okay to do that, even though I have six clipboards mm-hmm. with email lists on Sharpies mm-hmm. spread out across my no. floor. <laughs> and that's just how it's always going to be. And it's how it's always been. Yeah. And all those things have to be done and they, they will be done. Some of them maybe won't be done. There are going to be emails that don't ever get answered. That's just how it's going to be. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. And I think that 13-year-old self thought, I have to work harder than anybody. Mm -hmm. I have to take care of my mom. I have to cook her dinner. I have to get straight A's. I have to get a scholarship to college. I have to earn enough money in my side jobs to have a car so that I can go to my side jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is how it's going to happen. And this is what I have to do. I even applied to college without telling anybody because... You know, it just, that's just how things were at that time. And that sense that it's overwhelming is natural because it's how we survived. It's how we moved on. It's how we became the person who's turning on this podcast and listening to it right now, wherever you are, in your car, sitting somewhere, exercising. You wouldn't be here listening to this if you hadn't had to go through that sense of overwhelm. Mm -hmm. That's what brought us here was fighting through it, but it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Now there are things that won't get done. There are pages that maybe won't be written. There are, as I said, emails that won't get answered. Um, There are calls I might not return until tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. It's an invitation. It's a choice to walk through those doors where you feel the golden light, where you feel the relief, where you feel the sense of safety. You don't have to just keep opening doors that make you feel revved up and unsafe. You don't have Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's overwhelming to do that, to continue to open up those doors. I, um, 
I really appreciate that message. I'm not sure what my 20 year old self would have heard if I heard this podcast or maybe <laughs> I would have listened, but I do wish that at my 20, even my 30 year old self would have been able to understand the power of finding your golden doors and slowing down and listening to what your body is begging you to do. Um, so I have two more questions for you. My first is when you hear the word unlearning or you think about defining it or giving it some meaning, um, how do you think about or define unlearning? Listening to your essential self. Mm -hmm. Just listening within to your essential self. Something's happening. You have your habitual responses. And they might even make good sense in the world. But instead of going there first, listening to your regulate, regulating yourself and listening and whatever, whatever that takes, whatever it takes. So, you know, maybe there's a difficult person in your life and you've got your habitual responses. Yeah. Um, most people I know can't relate to that, but I, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. I don't know anything <laughs> you know, about habitual I, response. Yeah. No, I'm saying having difficult people, yeah. but, but we all have difficult people in our lives. If, you, if you've got a family of more than, you know, extended family of more than 10 people, you know, there's stuff. And they're also, you know, they're the drivers behind you on the highway who are honking and sitting on your butt and you can't even understand why they're doing it. Um, just coming to a place where it's not about the thinking, it's about the feeling mm -hmm. and the grounding and touching into what I know about myself to be true and knowing that I can find grounding in that moment through one of maybe a hundred different skills that I have. Yeah. Maybe it's breath work. Maybe it's focusing on the sensations of my hands. Maybe it's, um, you know, some mindful size. Maybe it's um, doing a little vagal relaxation exercise, whatever it is. Maybe it's, you know, blinking my eyes 50 times, whatever those yeah. things are. Yep that have worked for me, knowing that that's the place and the gift on the other side of that is to listen. And when I can listen to what is needed, what I need and what the other person needs, then I'm able to be there with a kind of grace and regulation, which I think shifts whatever will happen next. Mm and not trying to respond to the world until I respond to myself. I love that. That might be my favorite line, not responding to the world until you respond to yourself. <laughs> um, I wanna, this transitions us into um, uh, sort of a newer chapter in your career as a, as a journalist, as a writer, as a researcher, and also as a teacher. Um, you speak about, you have a couple courses, um, for different audiences, for clinical professionals, individuals, for, um, and for teens is a third one that is offered. Oh, teens, actual children and teens. Oh, yes. So actually that one is for parents, parents of teens, teens, but cool. yeah. So the, yeah. So, um, 
we run a course, a narrative writing course called Your Healing Narrative, Right to Heal with Neural Renarrating, which I think I've alluded to a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to combine the latest neuroscience with mindfulness and grounding techniques um, and narrative writing, which I think is a vastly underutilized tool mm -hmm. in the tooling box for patients with who are suffering from chronic stress and trauma. And what we what we do is it's an eight week, eight hour program, but people go at their own pace. And by using very, um, shall we say, carefully crafted prompts, writing prompts and exercises, there are a bunch of drawing exercises. There are uh, writing prompts that we use uh, based on my now 35 years of interviewing 10,000 people probably, mostly about suffering and trauma. Um, and to help jump past the brain's resistance to feeling, hearing, and seeing, and knowing, mm -hmm. but to do it a little bit and then bring in visualizations, drawing, met guided meditations, vagal soothing techniques, mm -hmm. all kinds of things that I've learned over the years from my teachers who I credit throughout the course. Um, and some of which I've developed over time um, in my lecture career where I'm often asked to keynote and then come back and teach a workshop. Mm -hmm. And so the history of this course came out of teaching workshops to organizations, um, behavioral health centers. And then during the pandemic, I found myself giving it all the time mm -hmm. uh, to Head Start teachers, to five counties in the state of California, to three medical schools. People were just on super burnout. Mm -hmm. Meditation wasn't cutting it for people. Yeah. And we brought in this narrative writing program um, to physicians, therapists, nurses, Head Start teachers, home care workers. I'm leaving out a bunch of parents um, and it just kind of blew my mind to see how people would shift during the process. First, I was doing it in person. Then during the pandemic, we were doing it on Zoom. Right. And I am very empathic and I still can't teach this course without crying mm -hmm. as I watch people cry. Yeah. But we also bring people to a place where they're able to completely rewrite that story. Yeah through a series of, again, very careful steps um, to begin to isolate the core of your story and go back in through that default mode network to find a different narrative mm -hmm. that is as true and more true right. and do that with resourcing things that have always been inside you and calling upon all of the um, the positive avatars that you've had in your yeah. life, including yourself yeah. at younger and older ages. So we kind of, we dive into that trauma story carefully, gently, lovingly, mm -hmm. past the resistance, mm -hmm. And then we begin to re-narrate yeah. that story and bring up the, tr the truth and allow that to go forward with us 
through every day of our lives. And what I love about it is that narrative writing and writing to heal ha is the only tool that I've ever seen that I've ever, ever looked at that combines the past and the present and the future at the same time. Mm -hmm. You're looking at the past, you're writing in the present moment, and you're creating a document that you can revisit many, many times in the future wow. and add to. And, you know, people show me their books and they've got their drawings and their crafts and their benefactor flip books and their, their answers to their writing prompts and things are circled with Sharpies and, um, and to have something like that for me, who's seen the power of listening to people's stories, seeing them understand their stories for the very first time and go, ah, mm -hmm. ah yeah, it's a light bulb moment and have that moment. Mm -hmm. And then to understand how we can go back and pull off some of the yuck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm and set it aside to find some of the glory yeah. and bring that up through writing to a place of prominence is I think the most moving thing I've ever done in my work. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have done it without having been a journalist and um, engaged in narrative writing and narrative interviewing yeah. for 30 years yeah. and working um, and of course, you know, the course is fully vetted by a number of very well-known psychotherapists yeah. because we only want to do what's safe. Yeah. What I really appreciate this, and I can tell your passion as you're speaking about it too, is that you you prime the body and the brain to be in a space of safety. You know, it's not just a writing course where you sit down and like, the, the most important thing is is context and where people are spiritually, energetically, and psychologically. And I think that that setting the, the space and then coming back to that space again and again is again what makes I think your work really um, profound and also really essential for people who are on their own healing journey. So um, tell the audience a little bit about where they can find this course and your books and your work. Sure. So um, you can find everything on my website, uh, Donna Jackson Nakazawa.com. Yep. So it's hard to spell, but honestly, if you put it in Google the wrong way, they'll 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 redirect yeah. you. So DonnaJacksonNakazawa.com, um, the books and courses. There are lots of drop down menus, um, and you can find pretty much everything that way. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm on social media to a moderate mo moderate degree on Twitter and Facebook and. Um, and and instagram um it's not it's not what i do all day long yeah. but um yeah. but i'm there yeah. uh and you can hear more about things that way but the best way is to go to my website and that'll take you to the courses um and yes so the next book yes the next book is called girls on the mm -hmm. edge and it looks at um well let me preface by saying it was only in 2016 that the national institutes of health suggested it's not a requirement but it's a request that sex differences were looked at in male female brains in the face of stress in preclinical research yeah. so this is very new mm. and of course um being in the world that i'm in working in neuroscience um 
as a niche, as a science journal, uh, people started telling me things in the middle of writing the last book. That's like how a lot of my books happen is um, my, my, my neuroscientist friends and I will have a dinner and they'll be like, did you know? And I'll go, what? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. You know, and then I'll start a file and I'll put a couple, you know, a dozen studies in there. And then I just want to sit back and see, right? right? Because you don't want to report on something, you know, it's um, being a science journal. A lot of times, you know, you see it's like watching some uh, trend run this way really yeah. fast. Da -da -da, yeah. Everyone has to do that. And then you see the back yep, walk, yep. you know, no, we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. So we have to sit back, we have to wait, we have to give it time, we have to understand the gravity of it and um, and also the depth and breadth of, of you know, multiple peer-reviewed research papers coming out over a period of time that can't really be refuted. But as I started to follow this, I began to see that we had missed something crucial and that is that during puberty with the onboarding of estrogen, mm -hmm which should be very protective in the face of chronic, unpredictable, toxic stress, very different things happen in the female developing body and brain immunologically and in terms of um, setting the stage for depression, anxiety, and many other mental health disorders that don't happen in the same way in the male brain. Things happen that are unique mm -hmm at that intersection of chronic stress, puberty, estrogen, and being female. So this is obviously a difficult conversation because we honestly don't know how this affects individuals who are transgender right. or gender fluid. Mm -hmm. This is really new research. So it's really about cisgender. And I'm very, very mindful of that. We only know what we know. Yeah. But it would be wrong of me as a reporter not to delve into this and bring out what we understand, which now helps us to see why we are looking at doubling and tripling rates of female teen mental health disorders over the past 20 years, unprecedented. The gap between um, the rate at which boys and girls are committing suicide is closing. The rate of female teen suicide went up 50% over the last decade. Mm. So, so we, you know, 36% of girls at 17 report already having had a major depressive episode. That's not just not wanting to go to school or being upset right. over that's unworthiness, shame, not feeling able to get out of bed, yeah. ruminate, you know, toxic rumination, a feeling of, of, self-loathing that goes on for weeks and weeks and right. weeks. So I could go on and on and on. And in fact, in the book, I have a couple of pages called, you know, girls by the numbers mm. because the stats are so staggering. But the question is, you know, if we, if we don't understand what's happening and why it's happening, can we really do everything we want to do about it? And when you think about the fact that 25 years ago, one of my favorite books in the world came out, you know, Reviving Ophelia. Mm. And the idea was to take a different look at girls' mental health. And we've tried. We've really, really tried. But the problem's getting worse and worse. And we know some of what is causing mm -hmm. that. And I write a lot about right. that. 
But we also have to dig into knowing what we understand about what happens to the female developing brain during puberty when there is a chronic sense of unsafety, which we just talked a lot about, how this shifts the female brain in ways that are very unique and different than the male brain. If we don't get in on that and unpack it, we aren't ever going to fix yeah, this crisis. We're not going to get ahead of it. We're not going to get ahead of it. And I think that um, as a writer, I've found that there's a lot of agitation and nervous system dysregulation when we don't understand something. Yeah. yeah. And when we can understand it, we get the opportunity to have a deeper conversation about it. And so I write about the problem, but also, you know, spent just as much time talking to the best minds of our time about the solutions. Okay. And so, and followed three girls for a really long period of time who were just extraordinary young mm -hmm. women who shared their narratives and, and we were able to help them begin to rewrite their narratives. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's a very meaningful book to me. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited to read it and to share it. Um, as I feel like with all of your books, um, one of the things I love most about you, Donna, is um, your the way that you make science um, personal, the way that you make it very real and applicable, and the way that it's, you know, oriented towards shifting our focus on what we can do about things that seem that do seem overwhelming, that do seem daunting, and in some ways generational. Like, how do we break this generational trauma? How do we break generational mental health issues? And I think that you know your work point towards points towards our sort of our own ability to create our own North Star with that. So thank you for the work you do um, and for being a guest on my podcast and for coming back and just our paths crossing. And I can't wait to see the way that they continue to cross. I'll always talk to you, Elisa, wherever we are in the world. Right. <laughs> so it's great to be with you again. And um, thank you for having thank me. You. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.